don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 51 and today we are talking about Babel from 2006, directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu. Um, and this is a movie that I've only seen twice now and that I didn't see for many years after it was released, but that I think is still fairly powerful. And it's strange to me that it seems to not have had as big of an impact as some of Iñárritu's other movies, but also just films of that time period in general. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, this was, maybe we talked about this last week, it was competing in the Academy Awards against The Departed mm-hmm. for be- for Best Picture and and did not win. Um, and it, uh, this was the first, this was the one after 21 Grams, which kind of put Inuritu on the map in in American film, his previous, the, the film previous to 21 Grams was, uh, Amoros Peros, a Spanish language film. But, uh, this was a big deal. Babel was a big deal when it came out. It had big stars. And yet it was still in that, that wonderful time, like, uh, you know, right before Netflix when these sort of auteurs were still getting, uh, you know, plenty of, I, I guess Inuritu still, still, you know, makes wide release films. Um, but there was a, you know, a handful of years there where we were getting some, some out there kind of very, um, artistic type films with a, with a wide release, uh, which, which was nice. And this was very much a part of that. And I, I saw this, I think, I don't think I saw it in a theater, but I saw it soon after its release and uh loved it saw it three or four times but then hadn't watched it until two days ago and i enjoyed it more than i ever have this time around yeah and it's strange looking at kind of the trajectory of of injury filmmaking career where he has morris peros and 21 grams and then babel and then his next movie after babel is beautiful which is mm-hmm. a far smaller kind of film in scope from Babel. It also doesn't have the same kind of star power, although uh, Javier Bardem uh, is in it, and that's that's post No Country Javier Bardem, so he was you know well known at that point. Um, and then you know he does Birdman. But yeah, but that that's another one. That's another one that was made. Uh, you know, it's it's subtitled, so it's. Um, especially in 2009 or whatever that was, maybe 2010. Oh, it's yeah. not, uh, it's not trying to be Babel. You know, it's, uh, uh, beautiful might, I haven't seen it in a while, but that might be my favorite of his, uh, which is saying a lot. Cause he's in my, he's definitely in my top five directors. Um, but yeah, beautiful is a very, very different thing, but with 21 grams and, and Amoros Paris, you have, you know, a big cast kind of interweaving storylines and then beautiful. You just have like a, a single kind of main character, 
um, and you follow him. Yeah. So yeah, it was a, a, a deviation. Um, but, uh, he, I can't, there's not, there's not an injury to film that I can think of that has, um, any sort of false moments, you know, any sort of misstep. It's just, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to make a compelling movie. Yeah. And even if you like move on up to his, his last two, you know, major kind of successes were Birdman and the Revenant, which are the range of his storytelling is really impressive to me. Cause those are all of the ones that we've mentioned in his whole filmography. They're very different. Like maybe the first three or four are kind of sort of cohesive, but then when you get to Birdman and the Revenant, it's kind of all over the map, but it's, it's all done really well and it all kind of hangs together. Right. And he made Birdman and the Revenant like back to back. Yeah. And and that's something I like, wanted to mention is, so he wins best director back to back for Birdman and the Revenant. Um, he's one of the only directors to ever do that. I think he's the first Mexican director to win them back to back, but he was the second Mexican director to win best director after Quran for, for gravity. Um, and just thinking about those, um, you know, the three amigos is sometimes what they're called, but, uh, Inuritu and Coran and Guillermo del Toro and how you have, you know, a director as interesting and strong as Guillermo del Toro, who is maybe like my least favorite of those three, <laughs> which is yeah. just goes to show sort of the strength of those directors and the movies. Right. Cause he's solid. Yeah. And I, and I was thinking about uh, Roma today, which is a movie we should do at some point. Damn it. Yeah. And, we didn't talk about what we're doing next week. Maybe we should just go ahead and say, yeah, man. I mean, we could definitely. We totally forgot to talk about that. Uh, but but just to have, I was just thinking about Roma and how, for one, it should win Best Picture, but for two, you know, Cron wins Best Director for that, um, and how it's a movie that like like Parasite, although people maybe didn't make the same kind of connection with Parasite. You have Cron um, basically making this movie about his childhood, and he's making it you know, set in Mexico, it's in Spanish and he doesn't really, it's, I would say it's not that he doesn't care whether or not you want to read subtitles or if you care about the kind of cultural depth of it, he's sort of putting trust in the audience that you will follow the story and be engrossed in it and be able to make connections to it and that sort of thing. Um, and, And I find that really compelling, especially in a movie like Babel, which is the problem. If there is a, if you even want to consider it a problem with Babel, is that it is coming in a world that's after Crash, and Crash kind of took this idea of a multi-storyline dramatic film and just sort of like crammed it down the toilet. So to to come after that, it's interesting to maybe I, I I don't know I don't have a time machine I don't remember but maybe some comparisons at the time were saying like this is like Crash but worldwide and sadder events or something like that. Um, when it's, it's done so much more adeptly and sort of illustrates so much about how our world works, whereas crash is just sort of pandering. Yeah. It seems like, uh, uh, the real problem is that you get reviewers and, and film critics who haven't seen a movie, you know, that didn't come out in the same decade when, whenever they're reviewing a film. And so when Crash came out, everyone was like, oh, what a cool idea uh, to like have these interweaving stories. And it's like you know, when Pulp Fiction came
came out in 1994, everyone was like, oh, what a cool idea to have these interweaving stories and told, you know, out of, you know, not in uh, linear time. It's like, this has been going on for many, many decades. Um, it's, you know, Crash did not invent the interweaving narrative um, or the, you know, multiple storylines the same way, you know, 21 grams did not invent the nonlinear plot. Um, and so, but, but that does at such a surface level thing that gets stuck in it, it, it in kind of a blogosphere type, uh, you know, critical viewpoint, um, where there's, there's not really, that's not really saying anything when you read like a blog about that or something. It's like, uh, Oh, Babel's just like copying, copying the, the sort of stunt that crash did. It's like, this is a, a, tool for storytelling that has been around uh, almost as long as filmmaking has been around uh, and it's and it's not in your fault <laughs> that, that people don't know that yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah. uh, so but I, I remember i remember reading a review a long time ago someone was comparing crash to magnolia because they both have you know several Character, several main characters and the stories sort of uh, relate. And I thought it was a great line. Someone was defending Magnolia uh, and they said, uh, Crash says, aren't I profound? Shut up and uh, aren't I profound? Now shut up and be enlightened. Whereas Magnolia says, Yes, I'm pretentious. Now watch me dance. <laughs> and I thought that was a great way to put it. Yeah, uh, I like that. But uh, there's uh, there's a uh, there's a limit to the to those comparisons because I think those comparisons, like I was saying, assume that there's like four movies ever that have done this, you know, kind of inter interconnected storylines or nonlinear plots. Um, so I, that's all I have to say about that. Nice. So it, to get into the movie a little bit, it just kind of start with the title because it comes from, as we were talking about before we started recording, the uh, you know biblical story. The language app. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, Duolingo. The, the uh, you know, biblical story, the, the Tower of Babel and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we can talk about that a little bit more, but... When I think of the Tower of Babel, then this is just part of being institutionalized in grad school. I think about the Tower of Babel that gets used as a sort of kind of a metaphor for for uh, translation, translation studies, as it you know uh, applies to literature. And you get this idea of when you have a text in translation, you have to be aware that you're losing some of the sort of original context and original sort of feeling and original kind of uh panache <laughs> that you would get uh, in the in the original language um and it just uh you know that's related to the overall story of of the tower of babel as it relates to to this film but what i think is interesting about using that for this film and this is not you know the deepest analysis ever is that you have this film that is sort of quote unquote global cinema it's made by a 
quote unquote international director um, uh, in Yuri too. And he's, it's set in these different locations around the world, dealing with these different stories that are interconnected by this sort of central through line, but you get sort of across all of them, um, three stories that are trying to translate kind of human connection and grief and, and, and all of these emotions, you know, across, you know, what would be a language barrier and even language barriers, barriers within, you know, other barriers or communication. So you have, um, Chieko, which is how I'm, I've decided to say that name. I'm probably wrong. The, uh, the Japanese character who is, you know, so not only is that a story taking place in a different language, but then that character is also deaf. So there's that extra level of, you know, a barrier to communication in there. Um, so the way that that's all, all been sort of given to us, I think is, is, is very interesting. And I notice that there are some lines every now and then there'll be like little lines, um, that are not in English, either they're in uh, Japanese or usually they would be in the Arabic and the Moroccan storyline that go untranslated, which I think is interesting. I only know that because, uh, my wife uh, speaks Arabic, so she would, she would pick up things that weren't translated and she'd be like, Oh, he just said this. There you go. Like they're usually like maybe not super important. Uh, at one point it was the cop, the Moroccan cop threatening the old lady. And he says, I'll cut you into little pieces or something like that. And she was like, huh, it's weird. They didn't translate it. Yeah. If there's, if there's a movie, uh, where what doesn't get translated is important, I'd say it's probably the movie called Babel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like I said, like yeah. I'm not, I'm not getting too far away from, from the doc here, but <laughs> I think it's worth mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, if we can go backwards a little bit here, I think, uh, I, I completely agree with what you're, you know, what you're getting at there. If we can go backwards though, and think about the last shot of the film, I think it's a beautiful shot. And I think it's a very, uh, uh, exemplary shot or, or metaphorical shot or something where you have Gieco, uh, sort of a, a close up on her and her father who have had these communication barriers and, and not just because she's, uh, deaf, but because of a sort of painful, um, uh, painful family death, I guess her, it seems like her mother and his wife, uh, committed suicide and they haven't really discussed it. Um, and you, you see that inability to communicate in, in Babel is less dependent on language than it is emotions. Uh, the same way Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett are not, they may be talking and understanding each other, but they're not. Um, you just cut out. Really have you, a just, conversation. you just cut out for a second. What'd you say? Uh, I, I said it the, the same way. The Japanese father and daughter are not able to communicate. Kate Blanchett and Brad Pitt's characters are also having trouble communicating for emotional reasons. Um, and so that last shot, I think, when you see this close up, and then you see the camera sort of, uh, you know, getting farther and farther away, the 
the father and the daughter are, become kind of obscured and small. And all you see is this giant city. Uh, and they're, you know, they're on like the top floor of the skyscraper apartment. Um, and I think that that sort of intimate connection that's finally happened being swallowed and smothered by this giant industrial technological city is, is, uh, you know, maybe the theme of the movie and, and very consistent with the, with the theme, I think of the biblical story of the tower of Babel, which as we were talking about earlier is a sort of, uh, tale of man's hubris, you know, so God sees that man is building this tower to try to get, uh, into the heavens to have God's perspective. And so he, uh, confuses their tongues i think is like the the translation of it and and so it, it's an e- essentially it's an ideological story where it's it's meant to explain why people speak different languages uh, the same way of stories why or the way they are now uh, but yeah so god confuses their tongues and that's why languages uh different languages exist but it's essentially god not wanting human beings to attain his perspective. Uh, and he understands that if it make, if he makes it more difficult to communicate, they will have more trouble uh, obtaining his perspective. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and so the industrial city, I think in Babel is maybe this, uh, a symbol like in the biblical story of man's hubris, the sort of global, uh, global city is is uh you know the city in the bible which they never say babel in the bible i think it's like a somehow a bastardization of babylonia or something yeah and i recommend uh going and looking at uh peter brugel the elders painting the tower of babel and i think that it's probably like the most well-known kind of old school uh version of that but it's kind of great because he he paints it as you would imagine like it would need to be constructed so the base of it is just like enormous huge thing and then it like is, is going up uh anyway that's just that's a a new segment we're trying called paintings i like uh so <laughs> so so check that out uh, but yeah I, I like that i the i like the use of Babel as the title for all of the reasons that we've talked about and you know, they become increasingly obvious, but it's such a kind of powerful uh, kind of guiding theme and it's carried off so well. And and with a set of stories that are like, they have this connection, but they're, you know, about as different as you could imagine, I think, which is the, one of the strengths of the film, uh, different in, in, you know, setting and cultural norms and that sort of stuff, not necessarily different in human emotion, which I think is kind of the point, one of the points that Inuritu is trying to get at and the, the screenwriter too. I, I keep saying Inuritu, but the screenplay by Guillermo uh, Arriaga, who his other big credit is a movie I've never seen that was directed by Tommy Lee Jones, three burials of a name. I can't pronounce something Estrada. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know what you're talking about. I never did see that one though. Yeah, maybe Mel Melchiades, Melchiades. Anyway, um, but 
yeah, so Ariaga does the screenplay and it, it, it fits together very uh very well. I heard a plot discussed once. I think it was um in reference to maybe the, the Watchmen graphic novel. They call it a something like an intricately structured jewel or something like that. Uh, mm. And I think this is a, a very well done uh, uh, screenplay. And the the biblical story of Babel, which gets you know that that's kind of where we get Babel from. I assume the word meaning to Babel or whatever. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I was actually I was reading about that, and it said that that pun um, actually existed in Hebrew. Like it, it the tra- I mean, it works in translation, obviously. Uh, but the the author of of Genesis would have uh, understood that pun because it works in Hebrew. Nice, which I thought was very uh, surprising, but cool. Yeah, and there's a in the uh, Islamic kind of Quranic tradition. There's this this line that I hear cited a lot, um, which is. Uh, I've I've made God saying I've I've made you into different nations so that you may get to know one another, <laughs> and it, it's this idea of um, getting to welcoming strangers and getting to know people is sort of one of the pleasures to have in life and sort of one of the great sort of uh, goals that you can have kind of as a human being. Um, I think there's some famous writer who says there's two stories. Uh, a stranger comes to town and going on a journey, which both involve, it's just a change in perspective. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I like that. I, I, I want to say I've heard that before. I think it's Hemingway. That that wouldn't surprise me. Um, I was trying to think of a joke, but I can't, I don't have anything there. There are three types of stories. Journey stranger comes to town and the boys are back in town. <laughs> and the porno version of a stranger. Comes yeah. To town. And the this this ain't the hero's journey, um. So, um, I forgot what I was going to talk about now. Um, so I want to I want to talk about the uh, Morocco storyline specifically. I want to talk about uh, Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett. I kept wanting to say Kate Winslet, Kate Blanchett. Um, and then also all of the like other tourists. A lot of them British, a couple French people. Um, and how kind of detestable they are for a lot of the film. Uh, and you know, we have the opening of, of, uh, Richard and Susan, Brad Pitt and, and Kate Blanchett having dinner and she refuses to like touch anything. She's got her hand sanitizer, which now it's like, I'm like, I wish I could get that. Um, <laughs> and she, you know, won't let him drink the Coke with the ice in it because they don't know where the water came from and all this sort of stuff. She has her, her, uh, her fork and her knife that she has in her purse. Um, and did you, did you catch, uh, another sort of reference to that characteristic of hers later on her dog in the movie? You're not, you don't know for sure that it's her daughter, but it's L Fanning's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, just says her mom says that Mexico is dirty. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, did I want, you notice that? Yeah, when they're driving into Mexico with the the maid, Gail Garcia or, Bernal, and he's like, "Oh, the thing is, it's full of Mexicans." <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that. Well, I want to talk about the kids later because they 
they start showing some bad signs, I think. Um, or actually, I'll just go ahead and say it. Like when it's when uh, the, I guess the nanny, you would call her um, Amelia, played by Adriana Barraza, leaves them in the desert and says, like, you know, I'll come back for you. You have to stay here. Um, and the little boy, I forget how he, how he introduces it, but he says, you're bad. Like he basically says like, you are bad. And, and she says, no, I'm not bad. I just made a bad decision. She made a poor decision. And it made me think of like how many storylines boil down to that. Basically a character, someone saying you're bad and saying, no, I just made a bad decision. Yeah. And the kid puts it in just, you know, very stark terms. This is what everyone's feeling. And he just says it. You're bad. And in a lot of ways, I was thinking about this, the the kids, when they go to the wedding, so she, you know, Amelia going to her son's wedding in Mexico has to take the kids with her because, you know, mom and dad are on the other side of the world dealing with an international incident. Um, and but, I think, but, but the, the question is why, why are they there in the first place? Yeah. Uh, but, but right? I think because they're, they're there with their, uh, first world emotional therapy. Basically, yeah. They're using this country as the backdrop for emotional healing of their marriage after having lost a uh, a young child. Um, but I think the the wedding in Mexico, I think the children, so El Fanning and then whatever the douchebag who plays the little boy, um, <laughs> they, uh, I think in a lot of ways, they're meant to be kind of the audience, well, you know, the American audience's kind of stand-in in that scene, because if you think about like the way that they're looking at, uh, you know, once they cross the border and they get into the Mexican city and the way it's shot is really beautiful. And you get like the vendors and you get like the donkey painted like a zebra and all of these things that they're seeing. And then at the wedding they're you know, the chicken when, um, uh, Bernal like takes the chicken and like rings its neck and the little boy is like horrified. I feel like that's how most, you know, of an American audience would react to something like that. And it seems like we're kind of their stand in of going into this world that we are not familiar with, or, you know, may have differing levels of familiarity with. And I just thought that was really well used. And so when we get to that point where the little boy says, you're bad, it's kind of like, I feel like a lot of audience members would arrive at that same moment of like, why did you do this to these kids when really, you know, this was the farthest thing from what she thought would happen. Yeah, and and any sort of positive experience they may have had at the wedding is now retrospectively after this terrible ex- traumatic experience will be used in their future as uh, you know as further evidence of how bad this country is. Well, even though they because, had like a great time, because at the countries wedding. countries can be assessed on individual, you know, uh, some short amount of time in a country. Yeah. So have you, have you ever noticed how when people like go to a different country, they and they'll say something like, <clears throat> uh, you know, you're like, oh, how was Ireland? And they're like, you know, the bus drivers in Ireland are really rude. <laughs> and what they mean is I rode a bus and the bus driver was rude. Yeah. And it's just like it because it's their first time there. They use every single event 
as you know a sort of example of a uh, national uh, character. And, and not just it's that, but like whole, yeah, whole government policies are based on that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, you see, I, I was kind of interested in the, uh, in, I don't remember the, the character's name, but the um, Moroccan who helps Richard with his wife, uh, Anwar. Um, and you know it's kind of funny because in the movie there, there's a, a long story tradition in American filmmaking which is like if you're in a store if you're in a foreign country there's like one good one and all the other ones are bad so you have like the one good Muslim right mm-hmm. and, and they're this, good be- and they're good because they speak English yeah and because they're like willing to you know, go against norms or and help the American, whatever kind of bullshit. But in this movie, it's interesting because as far as their storyline uh, within the little village of, uh, was it Lazarine or whatever it's called? I forget the name of the, the village. But um, the whole village is more or less good. It's just that Anwar is sort of like the goodest Muslim in, in that storyline. Because uh, you, you have my favorite character in the whole film, which is the old lady. Um, who is like giving uh, Susan the the opium or whatever it is, and like reading, like reciting the Quran over her, and like shooing the children away, and the vet comes and like sews her up and all that sort of stuff. So the whole village kind of goes out of their way, or it doesn't even really go out of their way. They just sort of do basic human dignity and and help Susan in this situation as best they can. And I just thought that was um interesting because as that's happening all the other tourists on the bus are freaking the fuck out and like flipping their shit because they're all, you know, have these racist kind of jingoistic assumptions. Like the guys like there was a village like this where they, in Egypt where they slit the throats of 50 Germans or whatever. Um, and you know, they're all like, like, what what are you doing here? If that is your understanding (laughs) of this region. Yeah, you thought the bus would protect you if someone really wanted to do that. Yeah. Uh, and they're all like typical kind of like fat British shitheads. Like, oi. Um, it, it's funny because one of them is named Peter Wright. And Peter Wright is then also the name of my favorite professional darts player. If you're interested in watching darts, watch Snakebite Peter Wright. He always has a mo- <laughs> he has a, a colored mohawk and he has like crazy stuff on his head. Anyway, um yeah, just I, I just thought that was interesting. Of like, these people are going, well, like I said, going out of their way is is the common phrase. Although I don't think that's really what they're doing, helping these people, um, this married couple, in sort of their darkest moment or their new darkest moment, I guess. And everyone's freaking out of like, oh, we, they're terrorists. We don't know what they're. Oh, we're in danger. Yeah, and you you see, it seems like these the characters on the bus are kind of stand-ins for the West. Yeah, uh, if if that term is still applicable, um, but especially is it the British guy who's kind of overweight and oh yeah, want to see him punched in the face? And when Brad Pitt finally confronts him, it's it's a very uh, rewarding scene. It. That's it's such a that is such a visceral scene of Brad Pitt just pointing like you leave, I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah. It's just like oh my god. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I've, I, what the scene 
where Brad Pitt uh, is helping Kate Blanchett take a piss is one of the most moving piss scenes I've ever seen. It's right up there with that opening scene of Austin Powers where they unfreeze him. <laughs> yeah, uh, agreed. I'd say this one's maybe even better than that one. It's close. Yeah, it's very, and you know, they have their their kind of, I guess, reconciliation. Sort of, they they finally kind of confront their grief over losing their child, and sort of admit thing like he admits that he ran away, and she's like, "Say, you know, I it wasn't my fault." Like that that sort of uh, heartbreaking line when something like that happens. Um, but yeah, it's a really great line, and it's after a while to me. And this is just because my brain's broken. I found it kind of comical. I'm like, she's still pissing. Like, is she <laughs> like, yeah, I was thinking about that too. Whether they're like making out, I'm like, is she pissing or did she finish? And like, that's why then they started kissing. Like, is she sitting in the piss? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's, but yeah, that is a really, it, it's, that's such a good, like combination of, of kind of low and high you know you have excrement and then you have this sort of like reconciliation between lovers it's i don't know it's it's a it's an interesting combination that well it makes you feel some kind of way it's like real yeah unpretty intimacy And, and that's i think that is uh what we're supposed to notice is how the the characters uh become more honest and and intimate with each other um and you see i guess we should just go ahead and talk about this uh there's there's a a sort of sub theme of incest in the movie (laughs) yeah you know you see the you see the the kid in morocco spying on his sister you see uh Unless I got this wrong, it seems like in the Japanese story, the uh, Chieko's friend ends up sort of making out with her cousin. Uh, I believe it is. She says, is that her cousin? I I didn't catch that. Because she introduces Chieko to these guys saying, it's that ends up making out with the guy she's trying to get with. And so, well, maybe, maybe the, her other guy, maybe the other guy was her cousin or something. And not uh, Haruki. I only remember his name because when he says he's like Haruki, right? I, I'm not sure, but uh, either way, I'm going to talk about the theme of incest. It, it would fit with this. Uh, <laughs> oh God! You're like I will not be tied down. Well, it seems to me that it is. It's it's like all the energy that we would need. For this intimacy that we see the uh, the characters come to the honesty and intimacy is tied up in this sort of uh, misplaced sort of fetishization of the evidence I would have for that are the you know this so potentially you, you cut out there for a second misplaced fetishization of what family oh, okay. You see, uh, I think I think incest is a is a pretty good metaphor for 
the fetishization of familial love as opposed to just like uh, neighborly love. Uh, so you see people willing to, uh, you know, this kid's like spying on his sister. Uh, potentially this girl's making out with her cousin and yet people can't have a conversation. Um, yeah. They can't talk you know about basic sorts of things. Right. And so, so like I'm saying, it's, it's like the, um, all our, all our love is tied up in this weird sort of, um, bastardization or, or appropriation or fetishization. Um, and I'm not sure what it is that leads the characters out of this and into, you know, a more intimate way. Um, but that, that seems to be a, a connecting thread. If in fact, I, I need to go back and watch that and see if, if that is, the case in the Japanese story. Um, yeah. But it, you know, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense and it seems like they can't like the only way they can try to get over this, this kind of hump um, is to, to try to have some sort of reconciliation or some sort of like confrontation with grief, at least in the, the Japanese and the, the Moroccan storylines. It's sort of once those characters are able to confront this, enormous loss that they've had whether it's you know the suicide of her mother in the japanese storyline or in morocco it's the the loss of their child um once they even though that's really not where the incest you're talking about is happening but but once they're able to do that they can get to this like new kind of intimacy whether it's you know you know uh richard and susan you know kissing you know as she's like pissing or you have uh, Chieko and her her dad kind of like holding hands and standing at the top of their their apartment building, uh, you know, and that's when we get that beautiful pan out shot. Um, but then you know the other two storylines complicate that or just sort of don't fit with that kind of pattern because of the the ways in which they end. Uh, but they do include some of that, or at least the um, the U.S. Mexico storyline has some of that idea of the idea of family where you have Amelia who has basically raised the children and even says that to the, you know, to the ice agent or whatever the fuck the guy is. And, you know, I've raised these kids. I'd put them to bed every night. I play with them. They're, I basically think of them as my own kids, that sort of thing. And because she's undocumented and she's committed, you know, broken this law, even though she didn't really make that decision kind of hoisted upon her. Um, she's never going to see them again. Like that's just out of the question. Um, that was I, I, you just reminded me. That was another uh, example I meant to point out in the in the incest theme. Is it seems a, a, at least a little bit Freudian that Amelia uh, ends up getting lucky at her son's wedding. Yeah, that's you know such a saying? good scene. Yeah, it's it's uh, I, I can't tell how we're supposed to feel about it because in the moment we're kind of seeing it from her perspective, and she's at a wedding and she's drinking and you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, but in the moment it, it feels kind of, kind of Freudian. Yeah, possibly. There's a lot of, um, you know, and obviously like the brother, sister stuff and the Moroccan storyline is like something that people 
I feel like a lot of people, especially in the the West or the global North or whatever you want to call the current plague lands, uh, would, would be sort of aghast at. Um, but you know, it's, I think a, a big part of it is that we're, that's a way of life that we're so far removed from this idea that that family lives in that like little kind of compound, if you want to even call it that. And they're the only people for kind of miles around. So, um, maybe, you know, it's still, you know, incestual, but maybe makes a little bit more sense in that context. Um, and maybe, you know, the, the difference in age or maybe like the, the women are sort of kept kind of away and the men are doing different kinds of, I don't know. There's a lot of ways you could go about sort of explaining why it, why it makes sense, not why it's you know, quote unquote, right, but why it sort of makes well, sense. And there's a difference between explaining why it makes sense, like in reality, in that region of the world and why it's included in the film. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, which I think the reason it's included in the film is a lot of things that you're talking about. Um, how great you want to talk about Freudian. How about when a uh, little dude is, a uh, is, a uh, beating his meat <laughs> in the rocks and then the gun goes <laughs> yeah. off. Oh yeah, yeah. You want to talk um, about Freudian? Perfect. Yeah, and uh, and it ends. The, the resolution is uh, that kid ends up just banging that gun up against a rock till it till it breaks. Oh what yeah, is that? right. What does that tell us? After he has like almost killed a woman by not knowing the power of it, or what, you know that 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 kind yeah. of thing. Pretty yeah. pretty great. Um, kills his brother with it funny to think about it like that um uh that storyline before is... i forget before i forget i, I knew i was going to forget this i meant to say this earlier um uh, but i was just i was the sort of uh symbol of the gun as a, a symbol of like patriarchy or something it reminded me of alfonso Cuaron and uh roma and the bookshelves mm-hmm. uh and so i was thinking about alfonso Cuaron and I noticed that in some translations of the story of the Tower of Babel uh, in the Bible, the phrase children of men is used oh. uh, in, in Genesis eleven five, it again, it's only, I think it's the King James and the English standard version. It uh, is translated as the, the people building the tower are the children of men. It's also that, that, that phrase is also used in Psalms. One of the, one of the Psalms. Anyway, it's interesting to think about uh, two of the directors we, you know, just automatically put into the same camp making movies in the same year. Children of Men, 2006, uh, in some ways based on the same biblical narrative. Man, I, I hate how in it. I hate how Children of Men was probably heavily discounted that year because it, it was a sci fi movie, quote unquote. It's a, the whole yeah. thing of Amitav Ghosh, the. That out the outhouses of of genre that are yeah. science fiction and stuff like that. Um, but going back to the Bible, I always tell students if I have a, a literature class or just anyone that will listen to me uh, that that a really helpful thing for understanding all of literature, not just well, I, I guess specifically Western literature, is to know at least something about the Bible because so much of it is coming either directly from that or specifically like titles. So you were just talking about children and men and Babel, but there's also throughout, you know, 
just American literary history, you have um, The Sun Also Rises, Absalom, Absalom, you know, all these these sorts of things. East of Eden. East of Eden. Yeah. Um, And what's sort of surprised me is like how, maybe I've talked about this before, but like I have a lot of students that I'll ask them about a biblical illusion and they won't know it where it like won't connect with them or they're like it, you would think their knowledge especially in a region with so many young people claiming to be uh, religious but that just shows you sort of the inherent weakness of american evangelicalism that that what's on the page doesn't really matter as much it's how you feel that's uh, uh, because we outsource we outsource our religion to preachers because you know, they you're yeah it's like we'll let them uh come up with our ideology for us. Yeah, it's like the, those verses don't talk about why the gays are bad. So we don't read those. <laughs> right. But I no, imagine, imagine, imagine trying to understand the movie mother with, with no knowledge of the Bible. Yeah. Or, or like missing it completely. That sort of thing. It, yeah. We had a, it read a John Muir essay and uh, he made a reference to the money and maybe I've talked about this on the show before. I don't remember, but he makes a reference to uh, the money lenders in the temple. And he's talking about the U S government basically. And uh, I asked my class, like what that's a reference to. And they were like, I don't know. And I was like, it's in the Bible. And they're like, it's a thing that the, the, the thing with Jesus. And I was like, you could be more specific. And then we sort of narrowed it down. And then eventually I just had to tell them of like money lenders in the temple. And they're all just like, Oh, okay. But like, it didn't connect. Um, you know, this thing, this story that uh, you live your life by. Yeah. This is yeah. what it is. Which is kind of funny. Cause like when I was teaching those classes at the Christian school that those things were like, they pick them up immediately. <laughs> I'd be like mm-hmm. the money lenders in the temple. And they're like, Oh yeah, that's a, uh, you know, Mark six, nine <laughs> or whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> They want to talk about Freudian six nine. Yeah, that's, that's Luke four twenty. Um, <laughs> so, oh, speaking yeah. of sixty nine, I'm just seeing uh, Babel's uh, Rotten Tomato scores sixty nine percent. No way. Check it out. Hell yeah! I did that before so the show. So you know it's good. <laughs> yeah, I went and took care of that before we started recording. It's kind of interesting that this film would not be very. Well, I mean, sixty nine is not terrible i guess but not be better received and i think part of it is that it is such a it's a very heavy drama like you can't really get around that even the uh the japan storyline which is maybe the lightest of them all even though it's pretty heavy too um and that has all the like misplaced desire sex stuff with uh chieko and like trying to seduce isn't even the right word but like force herself upon the dentist and like exposing herself to the guy at the restaurant uh that kind of stuff well that's you know that's it's all sort of coming into place here where you see this it's almost like a confusion of sex for intimacy where she's trying to hook up with these like older guys when what what she really wants is to have a conversation with her father about what happened, you know? And so you see that sort of displacement of, of need for sex. Um, Yeah. Well, and at the beginning 
or at the beginning of that storyline, at least she gets all, she gets thrown out of the volleyball game, uh, for losing her temper and her friend jokes like, Oh, she's just mad. Cause nobody's fucked her. And it's like, no, she's pissed off because her mom killed herself and she hasn't been able to talk to her dad about it. But, but in her head, she's sort of like, well, maybe that is it. Maybe if I do, you know, get fucked, then everything will get better, which is never the right answer. Unless right, your problem we, we is know. I would like to get fucked, then, then sure. But And we see, you know, that's interesting because the metaphor you were picking up on with like the kid jerking off and, and then the gun, you know, the gun blast goes off. So we, we see, uh, she thinks the solution to her problems is Dick. And we see where Dick gets you. <laughs> it's funny because uh brad pitt's character is named richard so he's dick too so if you want to go like yeah. real deep with it if you want to go real deep with dick um this this is a big dick movie you know heavy dick that's that's to, her girth to, is filled a lean night uh no there, there's a maybe i've said this on a podcast before i don't remember but had a teacher once who was talking about Philip K. Dick for some reason. And he was talking about how much he liked his, his books. And he goes, you know, that's just, uh, that's what's really great about all those old Dick stories. And then he stopped and he was like, <laughs> Dick stories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, I don't know what we were talking about. Um, talking about Dick. I, I, I don't think we're, we're, uh, telling any tales out of school uh when we pick up on these freudian themes i I don't think we're being pervs i think it's there textually oh for sure um even if you don't buy into like psychoanalytic readings of things which in case you couldn't tell will and i definitely do um, yeah you know there's a there, there are a lot of problems with psychoanalysis but i think in general i'm a i'm a fan um, yeah, I, I think it's it's very interesting to me to see and hear um, people's, uh, mainly like graduate students, in my experience, um, reactions to psychoanalysis or, or opinions about psychoanalysis. And the people I know who give it no kind of credence are people who have never read anything and they've just heard that like, Oh, it's we're in post Freudian times. And it's like, yeah, but you, you kind of have to, you have to earn that. You have to read it first to understand what that means. That doesn't mean that the unconscious isn't real or that you are not in some way, um, you know, influenced by unconscious desires many of which are sexual in nature um to hear people in the 21st century deny that is just mind-boggling to me yeah for sure and that i don't know i i'm kind of been thinking about the uh the pandemic in the the sort of uh vein of sort of art and philosophy and human understanding. And I saw an article, I think it was in the Atlantic. So like take that with a grain of salt, but it, it was saying, um, what, or basically saying that the plague had 
an enormous effect on art of the time period. And, you know, there are a lot of mitigating factors like the earth was much, you know, quote unquote, smaller than in a lot of other things. Um, but I, I definitely you will see what is happening now and what's going to happen for, you know, the foreseeable future uh, reflected in art in in the way people think about society and have to think about society and the world going forward. Um, and I think that's going to be very interesting. I, I sent you a link to this, but Zizek already wrote a book about this. <laughs> he already wrote I couldn't his... tell if that was real or like a, a meme someone had made. No, uh, he dude already wrote a book about it. Um, we'll probably write several more books because what else would he be doing right now? He's at home. Like he has to, um, they have to like tie him down like the exorcist to keep him from touching his face. <laughs> like, um, Coronavirus is, is like a Rorschach test. It's just like everyone, you know, whatever you see uh, in, in normal times, it's just like magnified in your response to coronavirus. Okay. If, there- if you see, if you, if you think globalism is the enemy, it's like, up, oh, told you. If you think, uh, you know, socialism is the enemy. Uh, look at these socialists uh, spreading these, you know, it's a hoax or whatever. And it, it's just like every, every, no matter what your sort of belief system is, you will see it uh, either threatened or lobbied for in the uh, in the Times. The New York Times. <laughs> in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Uh, definitely yeah and and i'm thinking about uh you know i'm i'm kind of a uh, sort of introvert kind of curmudgeon anyway so like staying at home for me i'm like cool um to to a point you know like i don't think anybody wants to be in the house all the time um but thinking about like people with much more uh kind of tenuous uh, mental health situations than I have, right? And I, and I think you're going to see, and you know, maybe I've seen some stuff about this already, but like suicide rates going through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's hard for people to feel hopeful uh, in the current situation, given what sort of yeah. what's going on. Although I will say, like something that made me feel better, and like I don't know, we talk a lot about scientism and stuff like that, but um, basically all scientific research that is not related to finding a vaccine is basically stopped. Like no one's bothering to do it anymore because Mm -hmm. if the, if this thing doesn't get taken care of, then what's the point? Um, so that, that kind of gave me some hope of like literally every country in the world is working on this. So somebody's got to find something at some point. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned mental health. I actually had a, a, a fleeting thought the other day. Uh, you know, they're closing like haircut, like barbershops and, and haircut like stores, <laughs> haircut stores. Uh, <laughs> how are people going to therapy? Like, are you zooming in for your therapy? I, I would, uh, I would guess like, well, if you have a good therapist, if you, if you're like uh Curtis and take shelter, <laughs> then probably not. Um, yeah, I, I but, just it just crossed my mind. Like, what what do you do about that? Because I mean, there's all kinds of like, obviously a lot of news coverage about you know healthcare facilities. 
mental health uh, facilities. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Hopefully, if hopefully people that need it are, are getting it. Um, although in the U.S., it's kind of it's always the problem is people needing things and then getting them. Um, right. So we'll just have to see. There's a lot of stuff like that. And I'm just trying to like, I have those moments a couple times a day where I'm just like, you know, you get claustrophobic. <laughs> Even if you're outside, you're just like, oh shit, what's happening? The world's ending. And like, I'll let it yeah. sort of like hit me like a wave. And I'm like, okay, it's fine. I'm okay. Just I, the, the, the most depressing thought I keep having is remember a few months ago before coronavirus how terrible everything was and now there's coronavirus yeah like and how they probably won't be an election in the fall and did you did you Kinsey so showed me this video of trump did you see the video where he's like laughing and like joking and apparently he's had some like rally which i didn't know that that was allowed to happen where he's basically he says I, he's talking to the people suffering from coronavirus. He says, "I don't care how sick you are, just hang on, so you can vote for me in November." And of course, he says it, you know, jokingly, but it's like, <laughs> but not. But the room, I mean, they are just like cackling. It's like, I don't. It's just this all feels like a dystopia. Just that you couldn't make this shit up. Oh, it's, you know, it's everyone's view of like, I am the protagonist of reality. This will not happen to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my job to be the survivor. That's what everyone right. thinks. But a lot of people in history were not the survivor. <laughs> so, yeah. I was thinking about the plague because um, there's a, a uh, YouTube channel I'm a big fan of called The School of Life. You may be familiar um, oh yeah, they they just they just released the the Camus one. Yeah, they did. They the, just did the, the, the plague. plague, the specific plague. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and the whole the whole idea of that is the idea of like this can't happen to me, whatever. And then it, and then you know the plague subsides, and they're like, okay, well it's over now. We don't need to worry about that ever again. Um. You know, and there's more to that video than that, but this idea that the plague isn't the plague the plague is that you are a living thing that is vulnerable and that will die at some point like mortality is the plague and i was like oh that's excellent like made me feel better even though it shouldn't yeah that's i mean i think that's why that book works you know and it's not just like a particular story about a disease it's about the disease that is man's condition on the planet yeah, that's uh, the Samuel Beckett quote of "You're on Earth. There's no cure for that." <laughs> uh, here's here's. I was just thinking about this. I can't remember why. Something you said. I I've been sort of what I've called trimming the fat on my bookshelf. Just like reading easy books to read, just like blazing through them. Uh, and I read the only Chuck Palahniuk book that I have that I hadn't read. It's called Rant. Is and the guy, I read is it. Is that the dude that hijacks the airplane? No, that's, that's uh, Survivor, Survivor okay. which is actually – that one's pretty cool. Uh, Rant is like uh, – it's it's a, written in the style of like an oral history or it's like a bunch of different characters telling the story in 
small. Anyway, there's there's uh, it's like a rabies pandemic, in in a, and coronavirus is specifically mentioned in the book, which was written in two thousand seven, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was very coincidental. I've never had never heard the phrase coronavirus, even despite like SARS and all that. Um, yeah. And then. I don't know why I'm telling this story, but I thought it was interesting. Then uh, yesterday I started uh, 1984, which I've somehow never, I've somehow never read that book. Um, and it started, the story takes place or starts on April 4th. And yesterday was April 4th when I started reading the book. I'm having all these like weird moments in my seemingly arbitrary, uh, book selections in my quarantine and i think i'm going crazy you are i think that's what's happening i'm just like starting to see meaning you know like where it's not where it's not there and it's just because i'm like at home all day with nothing to think about and then one day you're like oh do you hear the new episode of the podcast and jency's like what podcast and it turns out like i never existed (laughs) um like that's not a microphone that's yeah I love, I, I once, uh, back in the day when I worked at Walgreens, we were closing up for the night and it was just me and the, the manager and we we're walking out and he was walking behind me and I turn around and he wasn't there and it's because he had like walked around the other side of me and I, and I was like, Oh, that was weird. And he was like, he's like, dude, how crazy would, would it be if you turned around and I was just gone? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that would be weird. It's like, I would just leave and never come back. <laughs> oh. um, but yeah that stuff like that that could also just be like your brain like making those connections that other that weren't there before you know so now we have the reference in real life so when you see it on, on the page you're like oh my god but but really it's like and, and what that video kind of made or was trying to make clear is that like plagues if you want to, that's maybe not the most comforting word to use, but these kind of outbreaks, like they're the, they're kind of the norm, right? And they're cyclical and they happen. Um, and throughout human history, they've happened a lot and will keep happening. Yeah. <laughs> the end. Jerry's final thought. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, Springer. Uh, if there's any if there's any connection to uh, you know the the times right now uh, coronavirus namely and Babel I would say that it is the sort of um, globalism which is you know something people are talking about which which of course makes the spread of a disease or a virus uh, inevitable. Um, but I think that is a, a theme of Babel is even our ability, our sort of godlike ability to take it back to the Bible, uh, to build a world that is connected, uh, where we can travel around the world and, and, and we can have, you know, a, a Moroccan man and a Japanese man can be good hunting buddies and uh, American uh, 
men and women can go to Morocco on vacation. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily make us better at being human beings, uh, at being able to that um, doesn't really have a ton to do with, you know, the the globalism conversation in relation to coronavirus, but I guess maybe tangentially related. No, no, and I think it definitely does. It, it's kind of funny. I saw an article, and I don't know how true this is. I'm not an epidemiologist, uh, but yet, yet, but there's a the sort of I guess it's a theory. I don't, I don't know if they've actually pinpointed it, but you know, the, everyone knows at this point that the virus originates and originated in China. Um, and that's like, what your, your mic's cutting out. Oh, what your mic cut out. I didn't hear. Oh, uh, I just said it's the Chinese virus. Oh yeah, and and that's kind of where, you know, all the the chuds, all the like racist douchebags are, are calling it that, and they think that that somehow means something as thousands of Americans continue to, to die of something that didn't have to happen. Um, but this article was was basically saying that yes, it began in China, but the sort of the hub for the spread of it was Europe, travel from and within Europe. Uh, which is not terribly surprising, I guess. Um, but it, it's just funny to like somehow hold China accountable as if it's their fault. <laughs> you know? I mean, New, New York City now is the in New Orleans, what people keep, keep calling the epicenter. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. In which New- makes sense. It's 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 a world hub. Yeah, the same way. Paris and London are. Although I saw another article, I've been seeing all these articles that was saying like in the future, New York after this may become like all the older people may move because it's no longer a safe. And so it becomes younger and cheaper and, and that sort of stuff. So I don't know. We'll see. I wouldn't count your chicken jet on that. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any clue. And all the people like holding. How this is going to go. Everyone like, because the in the South it's not going too great <laughs> at the moment, um, especially New Orleans. And people are shitting on New Orleans because Mardi Gras was a big sort of vector for uh, infecting a lot of people. I was supposed to be in New Orleans uh, last weekend, I think. Or you know, you you, you bailed. Well, no, the, I was going to a conference. Not cool, dude. I was going to a conference. It got canceled, um, and. And rightfully so, it turns out. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just things are bad everywhere. Don't think that you're. This is not a time to be holier than thou about anything. The the only thing I can really take comfort in right now is the fact that Trump's a billionaire. There's not a there's not a bullet big <laughs> enough. You should have just said, you're bad. (laughs) You're bad. Oh, my God. I'm just, like, naked, standing on the roof of my house, just staring out into into the darkness. (laughs) Like like, uh, Chieko. Yeah. 
Um, just thinking about stuff. <sighs> it's a bummer, y'all. We were just talking before we started recording about the the stay-at-home orders in our respective states. So in Tennessee and Alabama now, that's a government policy. Stay six feet away I, from people. On that list is uh, liquor stores. Are closed? No, they're they're open. Oh, they're essential. Essential service. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking about that. I was like, they're doing that, I think, because if you closed them, people would just break in. Yeah, probably. I don't know. That's it's here. They all move to curbside, and restaurants in Alabama can sell liquor to go, but it has to be like in a sealed form, and it's basically designed to like help them get rid of their current inventory. Yeah. So you can buy like a bottle of wine from a restaurant. I don't know why you would do that unless you just wanted to support the restaurant, I guess. But I had to quit my drum circle. Ain't that a shame? Yeah. Everybody, everybody touching the drums all the time. Yeah. Uh, Can you imagine getting getting coronavirus from your drum circle? <laughs> there was a thing in a. I want to say it was in France. Makes sense, but it was like they're basically saying that like nobody should have orgies anymore. And then, and then in Alabama, the thing is like you're not allowed to have two gathering groups bigger than 10 so it's like could we have an orgy that's 10 people or less but you're also supposed to stay six feet away from each other so <laughs> so unless you've got a six foot dick it's uh well i guess i guess you're still touching with the dick it's um, it's six feet from the from the tip <laughs> Yeah, uh, babble dicks, <laughs> babble dicks, um, babble dicks. It sounds like some sort of like D and D thing. Um, so yeah, I guess going back to the movie, there it, it was kind of so the at the end of the film, I was sort of thinking about how the whole thing is like the world stops turning because a wealthy white American woman gets shot, and how that's indicative of things mm-hmm. um and that the that's worldwide news and that it's immediately labeled an act of terrorism right um and will not be unlabeled as such it's kind of uh, the scene at the end where they they shoot you know one of the kids and the the younger one uh yusuf i think is the younger one says you know i'm the one that shot the lady i was the one that was shooting at you that was shooting at you it's all my fault and i love the look on the the policeman's face after he makes this admission because he takes off his sunglasses and has this look of just like oh shit Mm. of like i've been he's been pursuing it as if it's some like hardened al-qaeda operative and then it's a little kid and he's like fuck Right, the the same way the news has covered it in that way, it continues to like and and will not stop. Like, if that were to happen in real life, there is a one hundred percent chance that they would cover that up and be like, "Oh, it was an unknown terrorist." 
And you, I, I love how like the resolution to this movie, like we said before, is this kid just destroying this gun, and and you see how there were no crimes committed. You know, when the the police officer in Japan is talking to the father, it's like, oh, this was a gift, uh, but like this is not. Uh, it, I I hate to say it because I mean obviously gun violence was was very rampant and a a thing in two thousand six, but not the conversation in 2006 in the discourse uh but it, it was nice in a from a 2020 perspective to see the resolution of a movie be the destruction of a gun mm-hmm. um you know this is the problem and of course it's a it's a symbol for you know a lot of stuff we've already talked about but it's also what it is um and you see just this this friendly gift exchange uh, of this particular thing causes immense suffering. Yeah, you know, meant to be a tool of husbandry, right? To continue this running dick metaphor. Uh, no, no, I just I just put this together. the The mom, uh, the the Japanese man's wife, shot herself. Correct. Mm-hmm. Did she shoot herself with that gun? And is that why he gave it away? I don't know. You'd think that if that was the case, he wouldn't be going on a hunting trip. But hey, I don't know, maybe. Or, or or was the hunting trip before the suicide? Maybe that's what yeah, it was. I would imagine. But yeah. with a different gun, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, either way, the fact that this guy collects guns, apparently... His wife had access to it and killed herself, shot herself. And then there's this whole thing in Morocco with this gun that he gives as a gift to his friend. Uh, Just an unequivocally anti-gun movie and and not just that. It's like, like we said, it's, it's the gun is, is much more than that. And, And it's clever that they have the gun originate from, the Japanese character, because from my understanding, and I don't know the ins and outs of it to obtain a gun in Japan is not a super easy thing. Hmm. Um, again, I don't know the rules, but it's not like here where you go to the flea market and you slap down your, your hundred dollars and you walk out with a rifle. Like this is, I think it's far more complicated. And I think that's why the Japanese detective sort of knew where to go because it's so like strictly tracked and regimented and they have all the records for it. Um, right. And, and so, so the film is saying, even in these strict, uh, in the, within these strict regulations, look at all this suffering that yeah. it's causing. And there's uh, just to like, so when I was a kid, uh, me and my, my, my shithead little kid friends, uh, up the holler, we all had BB guns and, and pellet guns and stuff and we're pretty reckless with them as, as you could imagine. We were like, you know, shooting whatever we could and like sticking bottle rockets in them and aiming them at each other and shit like that. Um, so to see these kids like with this rifle trying to shoot, you know, three kilometers and shooting at these cars and stuff, it's like, I think your first reaction would be like, why the fuck would you do that? But if you've ever been like a, a young boy, you're like, I get it. <laughs> like that, that, that kind of makes sense uh, to be that yeah, reckless and real. dumb. Hmm? It's like, it doesn't feel real to them. 
Yeah, they you know, they it's don't just, imagine it, that it might it's as a well thing. be a Coke can, you know. Yeah, and and even if they hit the bus, they're not going to hit a person like the, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. It's kind of funny. Like a, we had a, a thing with our neighbors. We have these uh, douchey shithead college kid neighbors that like hang out out back around a fire and like play music really loud. They play guitar outside, and they're not like it's not it's not that they're not good at guitar it's that the music they play is really shitty and so they just play like the same chord like one of them will play like the same chord progression for like 10 minutes and the other one plays this like noodly bullshit like elevator music solo um and they do it really loud and it's annoying but anyway um we were walking by the other day to take the dog on a walk and we, we hear like something hit the tree that's like in between us and their yard and it's like whistles through it. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And then I realized like their dog is carrying something and I look and it's a dead bird. And they had taken this pellet gun and shot a bird with it. And the, one of the dudes comes out with a shovel to get this bird. And I was like, did you guys just shoot something? And they're like, oh yeah, we got, we got a pellet gun back here. We use it to like shoot birds and squirrels and stuff. And I pause for a second and I just go, why? <laughs> and that's all it took for this guy to like, not know how to respond and he was like oh well you know the 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 squirrels come out here and get in the bird feeder and i didn't say this at the time but i was like you're holding a dead bird like obviously keeping them alive is not at the top of your priority list and how he tried to smooth over the situation he goes well we don't shoot at the road or anything we just shoot like in the yard and i was like i don't give a shit if you hit me like i'm not mad that you like shot at us or whatever i'm mad that you're doing it at all and I was like, all right, well, whatever, man, <laughs> and, and left. Um, so I'm thinking like those dead birds I found in my yard a few months ago were like these dudes shooting them for no reason, um, which is just like extremely disheartening and makes me hate these fuckheads. But um, yeah, that's a that's a disheartening tale. Yeah. But it, it watching Babel kind of because it happened so recently kind of made me think of that of like that's. That's the that's a young man's attitude of like being destructive for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, that's what Birdman is about. Yeah, and it gets back to this whole idea of like I was just kidding the phallus, (laughs) (laughs) right? So the problem is the phallus, phallocentrism. Mm -hmm. Sin, s i n, phallocentrism. And how cool was it in the night of when he had his tattoo that was sin and then it turned out it was sin bad and it was sin and bad on different hands. Very cool. I did not catch that. You can catch that because he gets the tattoo and it it says sin and you're like, oh, that's kind of stupid. And then you see him together and it's sin bad because that was his nickname. Man, I don't know how I missed that. They ask him, remember, they're like, do you want your nickname to be Aladdin or Sinbad? And he's like, sin, (laughs) sin bad. Uh, even though Aladdin, yeah, even though he's Pakistani, which is different. Anyway, um, <laughs> not important. Um, but yeah, Babel, um, great movie that has. I don't, maybe I said this at the beginning. I don't remember, but it's kind of like fallen by the wayside. No one really talks about it anymore. I mean, not that people should just be talking about it every day, but. It doesn't really seem to get it's mentioned. Kind of, it's so heavy. It's just so oh, yeah. heavy. It's one of those movies that does not lend itself to 
uh, you know, you don't want to watch this every six months. It's like, I want to watch this every six years. Yeah, it's definitely, and it's long. I mean, it's long by today's standards. So it's like two hours and three minutes or whatever. Two hours and 23 minutes. Oh shit. Never mind. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, quite long uh, by today's standards and really heavy like his other films. I mean, beautiful after this is like, that movie's a fucking gut punch. Um, 21 grams is fucking heavy too. The the weird, the, the outlier is Birdman, which is, I mean, not light, but it's like kind of goofy in some places. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and the Revenant in some ways is an outlier just because certainly heavy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, man, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a good one, but you got to strap in and be ready for it because it doesn't really, yeah. like you were saying, it's it's pretty breathless. It doesn't really let up once it starts. Like you, it's funny that like this, this young Japanese woman having this, you know, deep internal struggle is kind of the storyline that lets you catch your breath a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then the ending of, we haven't, we've talked about it a little bit, but the ending of the uh, American Mexican storyline is just like, incredibly heartbreaking and only became more relevant to current events as time went on um, mm. with her being deported because she's illegal and right. all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the assumption of guilt because she is not of this country, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, cool. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, so next week, I guess we're just going to watch Roma cause we didn't talk about it beforehand. Um, but that yeah, is it, is it, I was just about to say, is it streaming anywhere? It's a Netflix original. So yeah, it's streaming. And it has the Criterion release. Freaking um, sweet. So there's probably lots of uh, dope extra stuff to look at. Is it on Criterion yet? I doubt it. I, saw, I don't know. I'll tell you soon. Start watching. This is our, our uh, transition music. Try to do the Doug transition. Music. <laughs> it's funny. I, I searched. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I searched for Roma, and the first result was Dogtooth, which you told me to watch the Yorgos Lanthimos movie. Yeah. Um, no, it's not on there yet. So. Okay. But you know, it's on Netflix. So. Ooh, Russia. So, so what, wait, what are we, okay, Roma and that'll be 52? Uh-huh. We're, we're, we're on 50, 51, okay. We're just, we're kicking ass. Fahrenheit 51. Area 51. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's way better. Uh, so... <laughs> So yeah, next week um, we'll be kind. Of, it's kind of funny we did kind of a Australian, although both directors weren't Australian. Kind of doubleheader. Now we're doing kind of a Mexican director doubleheader. Maybe after that we'll watch a Del Toro movie. Yeah, that'd be awesome. You know what I also want to do if we want to go British is at some point I think we talked about doing a Terry Gilliam week. Um, I think there's some relevant stuff there. Oh yeah, Brazil just, and 
whatnot. Yeah, Brazil and Twelve Monkeys and uh, Zero Theorem, I think might might be worth talking about. But just just some just some stuff to look forward to coming down the oh yeah. the Anthropocene's pipe, shooting down that pipe at you. You can talk about mm-hmm. phallocentrism. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh that that treat pipe. Phallocentrism. What was the what was your what was the thing that I was thinking of? Phenomenology. Yeah. Um, <laughs> big fan of that. So yeah, that's what you know, we're not going anywhere, you're not going anywhere. Might as well talk about some movies. Yeah. Roma. Stay tuned.